Thank you, brother, very much for leading us in worship. We're glad to have you. Please know that you're a huge blessing to our church. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning, continuing on in this really wonderful book. Like I told you, this book is like a water lily, because those can grow up in the midst of a swamp. They are very beautiful flowers, but their surrounding is often very ugly and not very desirable. Ruth happens during the time of the book of Judges, which is an undesirable time to live in. It's not even a fun book to read through. It is scripture, so therefore it is eternal truth and good for us. But like I've told you in the past, it really shows us more of what we should not do than what we should do. And so Ruth is quite a beautiful example, though, of people living to glorify God during the time of the Judges. So we're going to be in chapter 3. Go ahead and make your way there. Let me ask you to bow with me in prayer before we get started. Father, thank you very much for this wonderful truth. Lord, we have it in our own language. Most of us even have multiple copies. What a blessing. There are languages on this earth that still don't even have it translated into their own language. And we know that this came to us at great cost of our brothers and sisters of old. So we thank you for it, Lord. I pray that you would help us to treasure it because it is quite a treasure. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live by it. Lord, help us to hide your truth, hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. I pray now that through the preaching that you would please speak to our hearts, guide us into all truth. I pray also, Lord, that you would draw sinners to yourself that they may be saved. And I pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. I do have a bit of a sore throat, so um, I know some of you are going to be let down. I won't be screaming and yelling as much as I usually do while I preach, so I'm sorry. Probably won't work up as much of a sweat as I normally do either. One of the things you notice when reading through Ruth is that God is spoken of in the book of Ruth, but God himself never speaks. He's not quoted as speaking in this book, though he's spoken of. God's handiwork can be clearly seen in this book, but God choosing to make his hand personally involved, we don't ever see that actually happen. We don't see him doing a miracle or anything like that, though his handiwork is clearly seen in this book. God is sovereign over all the affairs of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz in this book. But what we'll also learn in this chapter is that God also uses human means to accomplish his sovereign ends. To put it more simply, God sometimes uses human hands to bring about his sovereign plans, if you want to think of it that way, something that rhymes. I've titled the message this morning, A Sovereign God Still Uses Means. A sovereign God who orchestrates all of history exactly the way he wants it to go, he still uses human means. We seem to think we need to reconcile God's sovereignty, and man's responsibility. But I agree with Charles Spurgeon, who wittily said that these two truths don't need to be reconciled, he said, because they've never quarreled. 
<laughs> they don't need to be reconciled because these two truths have never gotten in a fight. These two truths exist perfectly in Scripture. We see both taught. They exist perfectly in the mind of God. The truth is the Bible teaches that God's sovereign hand does orchestrate all things according to his will. It also teaches that man moves and does what he wants to do and is held accountable for those actions too. Now for us, for us who've been convinced of the word of God by the spirit of God, we believe these truths exist together. These two truths, they can exist together and they do exist together. And in believing them, we glory in the majesty of God who's able to beautifully and precisely cause all of his truth to mesh together in a way that glorifies him so well. Now, our minds can't comprehend how the Lord does all he does. They can't. Our minds cannot grasp that. Everything God's about, everything he does and why he does it and how he makes it all work. But isn't that one of the things that we love about God? Isn't that one of the things that we glory in God is that he's incomprehensible. What does that mean except that you can't ever fully know and understand everything about him? Isn't that one of the great things that makes God, God? Ruth chapter 3 is a perfect example of God using human hands to bring about his sovereign plans. What do I mean? Well, let's get started. Let's just look right at it. Starting in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, because in the context here we're talking about Ruth. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, Chapter 1 set the stage for us with great loss, unfortunately, great loss in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, Orpah, who we learn about also, but she's now, she stayed in Moab with her relatives. But Naomi, Ruth, they experienced such loss, they both lost their husbands. They leave the land that they're from because of a great famine. They go to this other land seeking a better life, and what do they get except worse circumstances? Naomi says to her family when she comes back to Bethlehem where she's from, don't even call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Then in chapter 2, introduces our third main character, Boaz, gives us some hope because God is caring for these two widows through one of his own followers, Boaz. He's a rare bird in this, in this time in history because he is actually a faithful God follower with character, honor, real worth about him. And so we learn that he is also one of their kinsmen redeemers, which we're going to learn more about today. Now in chapter three, in chapter three, things really begin to look up. How? Well, we are still wondering if everything is going to work out for these two ladies, but chapter three shows us that, you know what? Things just might be looking up. Though we get to the end of the chapter, still kind of like, I don't know, is it going to work out? Now, of course, you've read the book more than likely, or you can go home and read it. So you'll figure out what happens. But if all we have is chapter 3, where we come to the end at a bit of a cliffhanger. But 
Continuing to dive into verse 1, I want you to notice something. Did you notice something's changed about Naomi? Did you notice something's changed about her? Look what she says in verse 1. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi isn't focusing on herself and her own sorrows anymore. She's now focused on someone else. She's not wallowing in the fact that she no longer has her husband. She's not wallowing in the fact that she no longer has her sons, as horrible as that is. She's not still sunk in the mire of thinking our plans, our big family plans that we had, they just didn't work out. And life's just so horrible. No, she's no longer focusing on the things she doesn't have. She's now concerned about what Ruth doesn't have. She's no longer focusing on her own loss. She's now shifting her focus on someone else's gain. She wants someone else now to gain. She's saying, let's think about what you don't have and what you need. I'm shifting my focus on wanting to better someone else. This is really great, too, because Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, this is when the Apostle Paul is actually writing from jail to the church at Philippi, giving them this wonderful advice, which is great for us as well. Naomi understood this, too. Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Count others as more significant than yourself. Some translations even say others as more important than yourselves. Do you want to overcome the pain of your own loss? Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you just had emptiness there. You want to overcome that? Start helping others gain you want to break those, the bitterness that you have from not getting your desires fulfilled? Help others fulfill theirs. What you find is when you stop focusing on self and help others, you free yourself from all this, what about me, what about me, thinking that just pulls you further and further down. Selfish, self-focused people have the mentality of, if I can't have this then no one can. Or if I can't have it, what should I care if others get it? Or this that type of thinking, selfish, self-focused, people think, what about me? That phrase should really never enter your mind and should never come out of your mouth. There's maybe only 0.01% of the time that you're going to say, what about me? And it not be selfish and self-focused, but something actually legitimate. But the other 99.99% of the time, it's just going to be selfish, self-centeredness. What about me? Also, selfish, self-centered people say things like, must be nice for her, must be nice for him. And that's just, again, a focus on self. I don't have that. Must be nice that she has it. Must be nice that he has it. But I don't, so I'm unhappy. Right? Those who are led by the Spirit of God, who follow the Word of God, find fulfillment, they find joy, they find healing in humbly thinking about the needs of others. 
and being concerned about the cares of others. Not so much about their own loss, but how can I help someone else gain? Not so much what do I not have, but how can I help someone else get? And we find our greatest joy there. After all, Jesus tells us what? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we see that. We see Naomi doing just that. I'm happy for her. She is starting to come out of that depressed state that she seemed to be in. She was just thinking God is against her. Now we actually see, from a distance, we can see, looking down on this narrative, God using her. And it's really great. She's happy to help someone else find healing while she's still trusting and waiting for her own healing. It's good news for us, too. You don't have to wait until you're fixed to help other people. Because the truth is, you're never going to come to a spot in your life where you think, you know what? I just can't improve anymore. I just, I'm, I'm just, I think I'm perfect. No. If you wait for that moment, it'll never come. You do what God calls you to today, following his word today. It's beautiful. I really love this about Naomi. I'm glad to see her coming out of this. It's another one of those beautiful petals we see in our water lily that's in this swamp. Now look at Naomi. Naomi's now being healed and helping others, not focusing just on herself and what she doesn't have, but helping someone else get, and I love that. Now, where chapter 2 was much easier to see God's providential hand moving in the affairs of Ruth's life, like, for example, remember, it, it happened to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And it, it happened to be that Ruth finds favor at the very first field she comes to. And it just so happens that this field belongs to a worthy, godly, God-following man. And it just so happens that that man is one of her kinsmen redeemers. We see God's providential working all in chapter 2, thinking, only only God, only God can orchestrate things with such beauty and such precision. And we see his hand all over chapter 2. Now, however, in chapter 3, we find it's largely the, number one, the, the matchmaking plans of Naomi. Number two, the obedient actions of Ruth. And then number three, the favorable reaction of Boaz that moved things along in this chapter. A lot of human involvement in this chapter, making things move. Chapter 2, a lot of God stuff. Chapter 3, a lot of the hand of man making things move right along. And these humans' means will ultimately accomplish God's sovereign ends. Listen to Naomi's plans in verses 2 through 4. Look at those with me. She says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? She was working in the field with his servant ladies because Boaz said, hey, feel free to do this now. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied all that you say, I will do. So, listen to Naomi's plans. She tells Ruth, number one, bathe. <laughs> number two, anoint yourself. Number three, put on your cloak. 
Then she tells Ruth where to go. She tells Ruth what to do. And she tells Ruth when to do it even. And then Ruth responds with, all that you say I will do. Notice that Ruth submits to the wisdom of Naomi. Just really general wisdom too. Just general wisdom. Hey, smell good. Look good. The clothes that you're wearing, change them. More than likely, she might have still been wearing her widow's clothing. Widows did that in that day. They wore clothing that said, I'm a widow. And she's telling her, change. Show him that you're actually available. I don't want you to just stay a widow with me anymore. You are so loyal and you have so much character. I know you would just stay, just me and you forever, but I don't want that for you. You're still young. I want you to improve and to grow and to just have this great life. I want that for you. And so she's giving her all this just natural advice and, and wisdom. Where to go, when to do, what to do, what, what, what to look like even, and how to smell even, all these things. And Ruth submits to the wisdom of Naomi. I want to I mention this. Godly authority figures in our lives are important. Let me share something with you. You'll find it humorous um, just because of how dense I was. And no, I'm not talking about yesterday. This was years ago, though things still do happen. So years ago, before we were married, we were engaged, Amy and I, but I went on my first mission trip, and it was a three-month mission trip to Belize, where we eventually ended up serving. I was there for three months. And when I came back, I was fully convinced, through a lot of different things, I was fully convinced that missions was in our future, and missions to Belize was in our future. Very convinced that this is what God wanted. He just he, he made it clear to me. So then a few months later, Amy and I get married, move into our own house, and the gears are turning, and, and we're both convinced this is what God wants us to do. God wants us to be missionaries, to Belize, career missionaries, and we're going. Spoke to my pastor. God wants us to be missionaries in Belize, and that's what we, that's what we want to do. We feel like God's leading us there. He said, in so many words, that's good. That's really good. Have you ever considered Bible college? And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. However, God wants us to be missionaries there now, I believe. So I spoke to my parents one day after a meal. I said, Mom, Dad, God wants us to be missionaries in Belize, full-time missionaries, and we're going to go. My dad said in so many words, that's good. I'm happy for you. But listen, if you'll go to Bible college or something like that and get training. I'll pay for it. I really will. And I said, Dad, that's so generous of you. Thank you very much. But God wants us to be missionaries. And we're going to go. Then I went and spoke with my friend who actually took me on that mission trip, that three-month mission trip. His name's Mike Ballard. He's still living. And I believe at that time he was living in Florida. And I went to his apartment in Florida and I visited with him and I said, Mike, God wants us to be missionaries there, full-time missionaries. You'll never guess what he said. Something to the effect of, I'm happy for you, but have you ever thought about Bible college? And at that point, I said, you know, I actually have thought about Bible college. <laughs> Through three different authority figures in my life, 
God, and it took three hammer blows to get it through my head that this was the Lord directing me through some godly authority figures in my life, that this is what he wanted. I ended up going to Bible college. <laughs> and um, even then, needed more education after that. Some of us need a lot more work than others before, before we're ready to be used by the Lord, it seems. Um, why do I bring all that up? God will often use the means of godly authority figures in your life to help guide you into what he wants for you. God will often do that. Like, for example, Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there's no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Also, Proverbs nineteen twenty, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. But I want you to listen again to what I said earlier because I chose my words very carefully in that phrase that I said. I said God will often use the means of godly authority figures in your life. I said often. I didn't say always, but I did say often. Does God sometimes lead us through the leading of his spirit? We feel strongly that he wants us to do something and it lines up with his word. Does God also lead us through reading his word? We're sitting there, we're reading the word of God. Something's very clear, tells us exactly what to do in a certain situation. Yes, does God use just the word, his spirit? Absolutely. But he often leads us through godly authority figures in our lives like he was doing here for Naomi. Now notice I also said something else. I chose my words carefully here too. What kind of authority figures? Notice I said godly authority figures. Not just authority figures in general, because Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It's not just any authority figure in your life. Some of your authority figures give you wicked counsel. I've got a friend who's going through, he's not in this room, so don't worry. I've got a friend who's going through a hard situation right now with his marriage. And guess what? A lot of people around him, a lot of authority figures around him are giving him counsel that's not good. They're not godly. A lot of people are saying, just divorce her. Just divorce her. Just divorce her. Move on. And he's saying, I don't feel convinced that I have godly grounds to divorce her. So he's receiving a lot of counsel, but it's not godly. So he's sticking to what the word of God says. Psalm 1 goes on to say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's our true guide, the Word of God. We're guided by it as we meditate on it day and night. What does it mean to meditate? Well, it means just to roll it over in your minds again and again and again, and we do that by being in it, of course. So, what makes a godly authority figure a godly authority figure? Well, number one, someone who is wise in the Scriptures. Number two, someone who has the motive of seeing you made more into the image of Jesus Christ. Number three, Someone who's got a long track record of walking with God faithfully. I would say those three things make up a godly counselor in your life. Someone who is wise in the scriptures, motivated to see you like Jesus, and has a long track record of walking successfully with God. I would say those people can be trusted. Those people can be trusted to follow their advice. And that's what we see Ruth here doing. 
She's saying, yes, Naomi, I'm going to do what you say. Because I believe Naomi had those things. Was Naomi perfect? Of course not. She was just coming out of a, a bad bout with some, um, what would you call it, the mully grubs. And we all get into that sometimes, don't we? However, that did not discount her from giving godly advice. So, these are the authority figures we should seek counsel from, not just any. Now, what happens next can seem a little bit forward, but let's just talk about it. Look at verses 6 through 7. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So notice this. He's at the threshing floor, just like Naomi said he would be. He's doing his work there. And it says in verse 7, when he had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he laid down at the end of the heap of his grain. So why was his heart merry? Well, because actually when the Jews were harvesting, it was supposed to be a time of rejoicing, a time of being merry. We actually see um, during the Feast of Booths in Deuteronomy 16, it says, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in this feast. Also, it ends by talking about um, how the Lord has blessed you in your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So the Lord, in his law even, especially during times of harvesting, wanted God's people to rejoice. Why? Because it shows God's blessed you, so be happy in that. As you're bringing all that produce in, it's right for you to rejoice and be happy. Enjoy the wine and be festive. That's what he was doing. Now it also says that he was sleeping there at the threshing floor. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he go home? Well, because his work wasn't done and he didn't want anybody to steal the work that he'd done so far. Instead of taking home every night everything that he'd threshed and then coming right back, they would just sleep there on the threshing floor to guard what they had. So that's the reason for the sleeping there at the threshing floor. And I want to say this about Ruth's actions. Her going there, laying at his feet, uncovering his feet, to us, that seems a little different, perhaps. It might even seem a little forward, but I want to let you know that Ruth's actions were not sensual in any way. She was not being uh, improperly forward in any way. Um, this would have been totally acceptable uh, actions for a woman of character in her day and in her culture. Just like we would think it's strange, men, if some woman came and started anointing your feet with oil and then wiping your feet with her hair, you would probably be a little uncomfortable. I know I would. But when that was happening to Jesus Christ, that was in no way taken by anybody singing, sitting around as, hey, this girl likes Jesus, apparently. Maybe they're going to date. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was seen as exactly what it was for in that day, in that culture. This was an act of worship, and this was an act of service. So, why am I laboring this? This was not forward on Ruth's part. This was not sensual in any way. This was not unacceptable in any way. This was totally acceptable. She's simply asking, she's simply inviting Boaz to become what the law of God made provisions for him to be. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled 
and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I want to address this too. He goes to sleep. He goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and a woman's there. You know, what I was thinking of when I read this was I was thinking about Adam. It's kind of a picture of what happened with Adam. Adam goes to sleep, wakes up, and there's Eve, right? And it's, she's the one for you. What's interesting is this. The first time God did that, it was all God's working. It was all God's doing. It was all by the hand of God. We're told in Genesis 2 that God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. God takes one of his ribs. God closes up the place, and God forms the woman from the rib. God, 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 right? Here in chapter 3, something not exactly similar, but it's got a little bit, it rhymes, it doesn't, you know, it's not perfect, but it's at least got some rhyming to it. The man falls asleep, wakes up, there's the woman. But this time, it's all, Naomi did this, Ruth did this, Boaz did this. But both things, with Adam and here at the threshing floor, accomplished God's will. Isn't that beautiful? God does use human hands sometimes to bring about his sovereign plans. So he wakes up, and he says this in verse 9, who are you? Why did he say that? It's dark. There's no nightlight plugged in in the corner. It is dark. Who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Again, she's simply asking, she's simply inviting Boaz to become what the law of God made provisions for him to become. He, by the law, was able to do this, able to redeem her. He was a kinsman redeemer. He had a right to take her as a wife. And when it says spread your wings over me, some of you might have a translation that says something like spread your cloak over me, spread the corner of your garment over me. Well, that word for the corner of your garment can be translated as wing. I think the translators in this translation translated wing because it goes back to something that he said to her in chapter 2. I don't know if you recall, but in chapter 2 verse 12, he's speaking to Ruth. He sees that she's a woman of character. She's loyal to her mother-in-law, even though she didn't have to be. She could have stayed home in Moab and stayed among her people. He's so taken by her. He says, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've taken refuge. He said that to her. I think she says back to him, maybe with a bit more emphasis on the corner of the garment being like a wing, probably on purpose because of what he said to her. He pronounced this blessing over her because she's taken refuge under the wing of God, and now she's saying to him, please spread your wing over me since you are a redeemer. This is really great, too, because it's an example of Christ. He is definitely 100% an example of Christ here who redeems us. What's it mean to redeem something? Well, it, it, it simply means, in the original language, it really means to to buy out of. really, It has the idea of buying something out of the marketplace. You take money with you, you redeem that money for what you want out of the marketplace. 
Jesus redeems us by his blood. He had to pay a price as well. We know that the wages of sin is death. Wages is something you earn, yes? The price to be paid for people was death. Jesus paid that price with his own death. He brought us in under the wings of God by paying the price for us, dying in our place, giving what should have been ours, giving a life under the wrath of Almighty God. That should have been ours. That did not belong. It did not belong on the head of Jesus Christ. He should not have taken that wrath. He didn't deserve it is what I'm trying to say. But he took it because he loves us. He took it because he wanted to redeem us. He wanted to take us in, though we didn't actually have a right to be in. Just like this Moabite woman does not have rights to be in either. She's brought in by the grace of God. And she's going to be brought into this family by the grace of this man who could have said, no, I don't want to. He had that right. But he chooses to. He chooses to bring her in, just like Jesus Christ chose to bring us in. And all who come to him in faith will be saved. You can repent of your sins and be saved today, right now. It's a free gift. Jesus has already procured your salvation by also being obedient to the law, like Boaz is going to be obedient to the law. Look what we see here. So, let me go to verse 10. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. That's just like a term of endearment. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What does he mean, this last kindness greater than the first? Well, her first kindness was that she was loyal to her mother-in-law. He's taken by that. He loves that about her. This is the second time he's brought it up. So this last kindness, the kindness in what? Wanting to be married to him. He says you could have gone after other younger men, which probably indicates that she's younger than him. A lot younger. I don't know how much younger, but she's, like I said, she's probably in her mid to upper 20s. said that last, last week. He is at least older enough that he says you could have gone after younger men, but probably not old enough that it would look like some scandal. But he says, basically, what a blessing you are to me in that you would want to be my wife. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That's cool, because if you recall what was said about him at the beginning of the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, it called him a worthy man. And now he's calling her a worthy woman. He's saying, you've got this character. You've got this reputation. Everyone knows you're a, a worthy woman. Verse 12, and now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Boaz knew what he wanted to do. Boaz wanted to marry her. 
it's clear that he likes her. Probably some of the women in here reading this pick up on it better than we, than we guys do. He's calling her a worthy woman. He says, you could have gone after younger dudes. It's clear he likes her. It's clear that he wants to marry her. However, notice what he said. But there's someone nearer to you than me. We've got to offer this to him first because that's the right thing to do according to the law. I know what I want to do. I want to marry you. However, according to the law, I've got to do what God wants to do. That's, that, that's good for us to hear, church. Boaz knew what he wanted, but according to the law, he also knew what God wanted. Sometimes our wants don't line up with God's wants. What God wants is what's best for us. We have to make our wants line up with God's wants. Otherwise, they're the wrong wants. Boaz, being a man of character, because he honors the word of God, submits himself to what God's law requires. He does that, which we're going to see. So they lie there until morning. He never lays a hand on her. He's an honorable man, which in Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, Hosea 9, 1, he's pronouncing judgment on Israel. He's a prophet that comes along later on. And he's pronouncing judgment upon Israel. Listen to what he says. He says, You've played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. The threshing floors, unfortunately, became a place of sexual immorality. Maybe because they were originally supposed to be a place of rejoicing, joy, Drinking wine there too, as you are bringing in the harvest. God wanted them to be in high spirits as they were bringing in all this wonderful grain that God had blessed them with. However, we know that sinful man can overindulge in his pleasures, and sometimes those pleasures get sensual. So apparently, the threshing floors became places where wrong things happened, but not with Boaz. Boaz never laid a hand on her. He was a man of God who respected the word of God and walked in accordance to it because he was led by the spirit of God. He is upright in character. So um, they lay there until morning. It's still dark. He actually sends her back to uh, her mother-in-law with a lot of grain. He fills up uh, part of her garment just with all this grain. And she goes back to her mother-in-law and says this. Let's look at verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. I like this, too, because it's showing he still cares about meeting the needs of widows. No matter what happens, I don't care if I get to marry you or not, because I don't know how it's going to go down. However, I still want to provide for you and your mother-in-law. I'm still concerned about meeting the needs of the poor and those who are without. No matter what I get, I'm still going to do what's right. Don't you love that? People that don't throw away the word of God just if they don't get what they want. I love that. I love that about Boaz. What a man of character and honor. Now, 
She says in verse 18, I like Naomi's response here. She says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. (laughs) I like that. Um, Why do I like it so much? Well, Naomi's old enough and wise enough to know how a man in love acts. (laughs) Everyone who knows Ruth's character, everyone who knows Boaz's character, knows that they're a smart match. They are. And he will not rest until he gets this figured out. Trust me, he's not just going to say, I don't know, I'll wait a few weeks and if I find that guy, I might talk to him. No, he is in love. He knows she likes him and he knows there's a chance this godly, worthy woman could be my wife. I'm going to find out today whether or not I can redeem this wonderful woman who actually wants to marry me. So we see here, and we'll continue to see next week, that God uses the means of the matchmaker here to bring about his glorious ends. And God is faithful. How is he faithful? How do we see God being faithful here? Well, he's, he's faithful to keep the promise that he made to Abraham hundreds of years before this ever took place. Promises that he originally initiated with his own miraculous hand. God was the one who caused a 90-year-old barren woman to conceive Isaac with a 100-year-old man. God did that. And God then made promises that through Isaac, your offspring shall be named, Abraham. Through Isaac, I'm going to bless the world through you. So God's made these promises, and now through the means of Naomi's plans, through Ruth's obedience, and through Boaz's choice, God is setting up the continued fulfillment of his eternal plans, plans that include his blessing that even comes to us through the Messiah that we'll learn more about next week. Pray with me. Lord, thank you very much for the fact that you keep your promise. Sometimes you break in and you cause it to happen miraculously. You break into this world and you do wonderful things. Lord, you cause a virgin to give birth. Lord, you cause the Messiah to walk on water. You cause the dead to rise. You do things by your mighty hand that no man can do. However, sometimes you also use very human means of your godly remnant of people using very commonplace wisdom and them doing what they want to do as it lines up with your word and you bring about your plans that way as well. So Lord, we thank you that you use human means to accomplish your eternal sovereign plans. So make that encourage us, please. Make that encourage us to be about the business of obeying your word, walking in the truth, knowing that you're even going to use us to bring about your sovereign plans. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.